this is Leo Oberst, and we also have uh, Fabian Newhouse. Uh, we're co-chairing uh, today's session, uh, the Ontology Summit 2008, towards an open ontology repository. Focus here is on uh, the uh, OOR uh, discussion, and that's an open ontology repository, uh, rationale, expectations, and requirements, session two. Uh, now, I can't uh, access the uh, online uh, deck of slides myself because of firewall issues, so uh, I'll just direct you and uh, tell you which slide uh, or next slide, uh, as the case may be. Uh, the way we're going to structure this is I'll have some opening remarks uh, and then uh, turn it over to uh, Fabian, who will uh, introduce the speakers and uh, time the speakers. Unfortunately, we have so many folks that uh, we have to do about 10 minutes per person. Uh, and then uh, we'll have a discussion at the end. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, if you're on the chat session, uh, you can ask questions uh, uh, incrementally, uh, dynamically. Uh, we just won't be able to uh, address them uh, necessarily um, uh, via the speakers on the phone line, but speakers uh, could uh, add a answers to the chat uh, session uh, whenever they uh, have time. Okay, uh, the first uh, slide, uh, this is panel two. Uh, the agenda is actually uh, the same agenda as we had last week, so uh, bear with me on this because today's call is actually uh, uh, the look ahead, uh, which is April 3rd, the second panel. Uh, the information on this agenda uh, uh, shows you where the ontology uh, summit mail list is um, and the uh, in the look ahead uh, where today's conference call uh, session is. And uh, today, as last week, the focus is going to be on uh, content providers, potential content providers, uh, and focusing on the rationale, expectations, and requirements. Next slide is rationale. So if you attended last week, um, uh, bear with me a bit because uh, this is the same. Uh, just very quickly, why are we interested in uh, an open ontology repository and what purpose does it serve? Uh, is it a semantic web uh, notion of distributed islands and semantics uh, enough as a de facto repository? These are just some uh, questions. And uh, the rationale is uh, we want to be able to find ontology, your ontology, simply. Uh, so it, if it's registered, you know who built it. Got metadata, so you know the purpose, the KR, the knowledge representation language, uh, the user group, etc. Uh, and you may know what the content subject area is. Uh, with luck, it's got uh, mapping, so you can connect it to other ontologies. That's one of the goals of the OOR. Uh, it's got quality and value as gauged by uh, recognized criteria, entrance requirements or gateway requirements, and we have a dedicated group to that. It's got other services, so the app services, 
uh, searching services, uh, reviewing certifying services, uh, and many other services yet to be defined. And it's linked possibly to multiple common middle and upper on, uh, ontologies. And with luck, it can be easily extended, much like uh, some of the rationale, again, for the semantic web uh, ontologies. Next slide is uh, expectations. Will this uh, repository solve everything? Obviously not, but how will we state what we want and need? Uh, can we provide good services to users, uh, content providers, application developers? And in particular today, as last week, what do content providers expect to find and use? And what do they expect to provide? The next slide, uh, requirements. What's needed uh, today, tomorrow, next week? What do end users need, content providers need, application developers need? Uh, the four groups we have currently, plus the fifth one, which is the OOR, uh, the architecture group, the uh, ontology of ontologies group, quality and gateway criteria group, and the state-of-the-art uh, group. Uh, the OOR uh, is a separate group because uh, it hopes to ingest uh, the results of the other groups and build a way forward. Uh, on ontology, open ontology requir uh, repository requirements through design, implementation, uh, long-term maintenance and enhancement, uh, and initially, of course, a technical roadmap and, uh, and then a realization of that roadmap. And uh, the focus is how do we ensure long-term value, quality, uh, commitment, and progress, especially an open uh, effort like this. And, of course, uh, all of this is towards the Ontology Summit 2008 and its communique. Uh, okay, the next slide is a listing of our uh, panelists today, and at this point, uh, let Fabian take over. Thank you, and welcome to the session. Uh, thank you very much, Leo, and uh, welcome also from me, everybody. Um, just, um, I want to remind, like to remind everybody of the um, of the agenda. So we will have um, our panelists speaking. Uh, each of them will speak for ten minutes, and afterwards we will have the discussion. In order to ensure that there is time for discussion left, I will enforce the or have to enforce the uh, time limit rather strictly. So after eight minutes, I will give a signal that there are two minutes left. Our first speaker today is Zach Lennart, from, uh, who is the CIO from PsyCorp, uh, which develops Psych. Given his experience in large-scale ontology engineering, I'm sure that we will learn a lot from him about the requirements for the OR. Zach, are you there? Yes. Can you all hear me? Yes. Yes. Great. Very clear. Uh, th thank you. I'm... I'm uh I'm used to summarizing the last uh, 25 years of my life in one hour, so we'll see if I can do it in uh, five or ten minutes. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so if you turn to um, uh, this opening slide, uh, what I'd like to briefly cover is um, just give you um, uh, some hint of the content that we're talking about um, having hosted, um, what it is we'd want a good host to provide, 
um, and then um, raise the sort of controversial issue of given everything that's happening in the world, uh, why are we doing this and um, uh, what should we be doing? So let's um, turn to uh, slide two uh, where we uh, talk, um, so begin to talk about the content. And uh, there are two elements of content that we provide, uh, open psych and research psych. Uh, I'm assuming that most of you, certainly all of you, um, hopefully on this call or later podcast, are familiar enough with Psych that I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for slide two here, actually. Um, and um, um, Open Psych uh, contains the Psych ontology, uh, and it contains um, um, necessary sort of taxonomic assertions um, um, about uh, the terms in um, in that ontology. Uh, so uh, there are about 30,000 open psych um, users with quotes around that because we're not sure exactly um, um, who's doing um, what with open psych because open psych is provided completely free um, uh, for people even if they want to uh, make commercial use of it. We also provide something called research psych which contains more of um, the psych uh, knowledge base um, and um, that um, uh, I, I won't have as much to say um, about that. Uh, we provide that for um, research and development purposes completely free. Um, eventually, if people make uh, commercial applications out of that, then we want them to come back and license research like um, from us. Um, but research like is essentially open psych plus a few million additional um, axioms. Um, if you think of it that way, then I think mostly we can focus on this discussion on um, what it would mean for OOR to host OpenPsych. Um, that there are sev there are several. Hello. Yes, yeah. I, I need to interrupt a little for one reason or another. Uh, so, uh, if you continue, I'll try to see if we could bring uh, get that to show up properly. Uh, is that okay? Um, sure. Um, so, um, in in the slides that you will eventually see or eventually download and see, did um, can I can I just ask someone to um, unmute and jump in and let me know if you were able to um, locally download the slides and so locally you're I, able to be watching the, these. My first two clicks didn't get them, but the third did. But I have to open them in PowerPoint. Yes, with my experience. Yes, it's PowerPoint, uh, not Open Office. And one needs to give them a few seconds to download. Otherwise, I got them all. Okay. Thank, thank you, Pat. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm going to uh, duplicate some of the information on the slides just in case you don't have the slides um, in front of you. Um, um, on slide three, uh, I've actually um, given some sample um, um, uh, bullet points of what people are doing with um, OpenPsych and Research Psych today. Uh, normally, I wouldn't have included it. Uh, but um, someone um, who shall go unnamed, uh, um, uh, but whose name uh, rhymes with um, uh, John um sent a message out which caused me to insert a slide saying, yes, indeed, there are lots of people um, um, who are and um, in many cases have been for a long time um, using Psych um, successfully and using Open Psych and Research Psych um, successfully. So that includes... Um, um, a large uh, medical research center where um, uh, the doctors there um, are used to have to formulate their queries in medical English 
and then send them to database people who then translated them um, for their databases. Um, and about a month later, they got the answers to their queries. Um, those same um, um, clinical researchers are now able to directly um, formulate um, what under the covers turn out to be large predicate calculus um, assertions, um, which then get translated automatically into the appropriate um, SQL and Sparkle and so on. Um, and researchers at um, Glaxo um, have been using Psych um, to align um, ontologies um, across different um, countries and uh, across different eras in time, large chemical thesauri and so on. Um, they've been doing that continuously um, um, since about uh, 1993, um, and uh, that's an example of an, an MCC company that's been supporting Psych and using Psych and continues to license Psych every year. Um, so. Um, just, just in case you wondered, yes, indeed, there are some uh, some people who um, uh, who are using this and are um, getting some power out of it. Um, so, um, slide four is um, um, what's in OpenPsych. So, if we could go to um, that, that next slide four, um, then you can get a hint of some of the assertions, um, some of the content, some of the terms in in OpenPsych. So, this is sort of a count of the number of assertions with some of the more common predicates which appear in OpenPsych. So OpenPsych altogether includes a couple million assertions. It includes assertions about a few hundred thousand terms. Those assertions um, um, themselves only involve a handful of predicates, I think a couple dozen predicates, but they talk about, in other words, as terms, they talk about another 14,000 predicates, and they talk about 57,000 classes, and they talk about a couple hundred um, thousand individuals um, and so on. So you sort of get an idea there. So, for example, there are um, something like 6,000 disjoint with assertions. There are um, 400,000 um, denotation um, um, assertions. There are um, uh, 17,000 assertions that talk about the type that the first argument of a particular predicate can have and so on. Um, and I want to call your attention to the very bottom right one, which is autonomous external concept. Um, one of the things which I'll come back to at the end of my talk is that I think that um, a good host um, needs to try to agree, even if you can't agree on terms in general, um, it would be really useful to agree on the inter-ontology mapping terms so that um, to the extent possible, um, um, everyone who wants to, ho to have their content hosted um, adds or modifies or renames um, the alignment um, terms in their own ontology so that um, what alignments there are are as uh, transparent as possible. So, for example, some of those synonymous external concept assertions map particular open psych terms to particular WordNet sinsets. That's an example of a use of synonymous external um, concept. Um, if you turn to um, the, um, the next um, few slides, so the next slide in particular um, uh, basically um, is talking about, uh, I just, uh, I happened to pick the last thing that people made a slide up about, about open site content, so this is basically talking about systems and processes. This will give you, uh, this and the next few slides, just to give you a sense that we really have tried to hand engineer to try to generalize as much as possible to try to introduce um, the vocabulary and the common generalizations um, appropriately. Obviously, when we're talking about numbers like um, hundreds of thousands or millions, I can't really um, 
um, give you a sense of what's in there, but this is just like a, to give you a flavor. So if we go to the next um, slide, um, you can see that wherever possible um, on slide, um, um, uh, I guess, seven here, we've, we've tried to um, unify um, aspects, for example, of um, ecology and um, um, politics and economy and so on um, in terms of, for example, autocatalytic processes that uh, partially sustain and enable their own continued processing, whether that's the functioning of an ecology or an economy um, and so on. Um, if you go to um, the next um, slide, um, um, this is just to show you sort of the level of detail of um, ecosystem classes. This is something um, that uh, people just happen to um, um, ask about yesterday, and since it was the, the last thing they asked about, I decided to um, include that. Uh, the next slide, um, which I think is slide um, um, eight, sort of actually includes um, um, the point where we stop um, including terms in our ontology, in particular the fact that um, Santa Barbara has um, grassy terrain is not something that we would actually um, include. Um, all right, so let's turn, uh, since time is going by, to the next question of what we want a good host to provide. Uh, we basically want four things from a good host. We want a commitment that the content will be provided under some Creative Commons license, in particular not a GNU license. Um, second, we want um, retention of the provenance and lineage of the contributed ontological content so that if some of our um, ontology, if some of our content is useful, um, we'd like for people to know um, in some way, even if it's at a meta level, that um, this um, came from um, um, our system. Um, the third thing we'd like is agreement on some of the most fundamental ontological relations uh, to the extent possible. So if everybody has a kind of um, instance of relation, um, it would be nice if we called them uh, the same thing. I understand that that's quickly going to get to the point where people will not agree, but to the extent we can agree, that would be a good thing. And then um, finally, what I mentioned before, um, no matter how much we do or don't agree on the particular um, relations within an ontology, um, I think it's critical that we agree on a small set of inter-ontology mapping relations like synonymous external concepts. And again, I don't care exactly. I don't have my ego around what they do yet. Um, agreement and then enforce that. If you want your content hosted, um, this is what you have to call those alignment relations. Uh, the next slide, which I think is slide 10, um, um, raises this sort of um, question which I think people will want to come back to in the discussion session, which is, given all the things that are going on in the world, um, do we really need one more project? Um, I mentioned Occam, in case you aren't aware of it. Occam um, is a funded um, um, FP7 project um, that the um, uh, that actually should say EU rather than UE, but perhaps in some languages UE would be the right abbreviation. <laughs> um, that started a couple months ago. You need to rev it up. Rev it up. Okay. Um, and the DBP pro um, uh, the DBPedia project and so on. And on the next slide, um, um, you can see there are lots of other projects that I believe um, other people will be talking about in their sessions. I'm not going to belabor that. Um, if you skip down to uh, slide 12, you can see the participants in the Large Knowledge Collider project, and one of them is PsyCorp. We actually have a Slovenian subsidiary, um, Psych, um, PsyCorp Slovenia, um, that is one of the LARC um, participants. Um, and if you skip down to slide 13, you can sort of see um, the basic um, 
um, Lark Dream and the final slide, slide 14, um, basically shows the, um, uh, the, the architecture of the platform and the role that um, psychontology is playing there. And my final comment will be that uh, while we're focusing this session on ontology, um, it's important to also think in terms of hosting um, the inference engines, the interfaces, and so on um, that um, different contributors are going to have. And so we would definitely consider it an enormous plus if whoever was going to host this could also um, host um, the inference engines and the interface tools. Let me stop at this point, and I'm sure that this will uh, raise uh, some hackles for the Q&A session later. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I'm sure we will have a lot to discuss later. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Deep Smith from the National Institute of Building and Sciences, and he is also the Executive Director of Building Smart Alliance. He is going to talk about National Building Information Modeling Standards. Are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yes, you, okay. you are fine. And uh, are you going to bring up the slides, my slides? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, what, we, uh, what we're doing with the uh, National Institute of Building Sciences is, um, for the construction industry, working out uh, – um, really an overall picture of how um, how we're going to build buildings in the future um, and changing really uh, the cultures that are out there right now and how how buildings are uh, are built national just a little bit of background on the National Institute of Building Sciences it was established in 1974 by the um, by a congressional um, act and um, but is now really a 501c3 organization, so it's, um, it, it, it operates on its own uh, um, recognizance, if you will. Um, it's not a government agency. Um, we started out in, in 92 in, uh, with what was called the Facility Information Council, and I'm on the second slide now, um, with what was called the Facility Information Council, and that basically said that what we wanted to do is um, look at buildings over their life cycle and uh, come up with common and open standards that uh, that we could use across the across the board. To that end, we've um, uh, we've got a, a product called the Whole Building Design Guide, which uh, has over 1.2 million docu unique document downloads a, a month right now. Uh, we also have the National CAD standard, and just recently, and what I'll talk about most today, is the National Building Information Model standard. Um, next slide, please. Um, what our real goal? We we'll get the next slide. Thank you. Um, our real goal is to really build buildings electronically before we build them physically. This is a model of the Disney Concert Hall, um, and uh, by um, uh, by Frank uh, Frank Gehry, and uh, and also uh, the model was built by uh, Dennis Shelton of Gehry Technologies. Um, and you can see from that, I think that you know the the type of complexity that you can get into, and what we're talking about is now how structural systems and exterior skins, um, mechanical systems, electrical systems, things like that have to interact. Next slide. This is, um, this is all based on an effort that's really called the International Alliance for Interoperability. 
which is made up of about 30 countries. Um, the Building Smart Alliance is North America's effort um, at this. And, um, and the basis for what the International Alliance for Interoperability has been doing is called the International Foundation Classes, or IFCs. Um, there's, uh, those have been in, in development for about 10 years, and they are implemented by most of the major um, vendors at this point. Um, they're still somewhat in their infancy as, as uh, we have uh, some successes. We have some uh, uh, not-so-resounding successes um, with how information is, is transferred. But basically it works that uh, information is transferred into a common model, and then uh, another program along the life cycle would pick up that information out of the model and be able to, uh, to work. So um, things like metadata and, uh, and having a common, um, you know, common uh, ontologies and taxonomies um, are important to the overall uh, process that we have. Next slide, please. This is the uh, National BIM standard that was um, issued in, uh, in December of this past year, really part one um, of, the, of a document. The uh, part two is really the actual uh, consensus standard parts that are, uh, that, and we'll talk about those. Um, it is specific to the United States. However, as I mentioned earlier, it is tied in with uh, what uh, other countries around the world are doing. And, and just to think of that is if you have a door um, in, your, uh, in, your, in your building and it's, uh, it has a height, it has a width, a thickness, um, it has a fire rating, things like that. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's in feet and inches or in centimeters and millimeters or what, uh, you know, what code the actual um, uh, fire codes use. They, it still will have that piece of information attached to it. Um, we also look at things like um, information assurance and, and protection of that information and capability maturity model as far as how mature different models are. Um, and it, they run the, run the real gamut of this, and in, included in them to having enough information as, a, as in the previous uh, picture to, uh, uh, to be able to work out conflicts and, and see if any, uh, um, you know, any pipes are uh, colliding with walls or, or steel beams and things like that. Um, and uh, we already, the um, Australians and the Norwegians have already picked up the core of this uh, uh, standard and they're uh, using it in their in their products too. Next slide, please. Um, this shows the uh, getting into really more of the discussion for today. This shows uh, the relationship that we have with the uh, what's the Open Geospatial Consortium, which is uh, another international effort, um, and uh, looking at the geospatial world and then uh, efforts internal to buildings with uh, General Services Administration, the Open Standards Consortium for Real Estate, and ourselves um, in putting together this model to be able to show how, how the smallest room or component in a facility relates to a worldview and, uh, and, and the, uh, what's are natural, natural assets as well as uh, real property assets and how they, they all relate up, uh, up and down the line. Next slide, please. Um, this is one of the 
one of the main pieces that we use. It's called OmniClass. It's from the Construction Specifications Institute and can, uh, and then also the same organization in Canada. Um, and it's a range of several tables. Um, the most notable that the uh, construction industry uses is uh, what's called master format, which is table 22. Um, another table that's very popular is, is also uniformat. Um, next slide, please. We'll take a look at uniformat, which right now is undergoing uh, some modification um, because it, there were, it, it, although we had one uniformat at one point in time, then we split up and had about five different versions. So now we're getting it all back to one again. Um, and the other thing is that this, uh, the, the uniformat, which talks about uh, the structure of a building, the, sh out the shell of the building, the exterior closure, things like that, um, interior service, and the, all the different parts. Um, it ties back, and you'll see the, the numbers that are on the, um, uh, in, kind of in the middle of the screen, I guess, that uh, one of the numbers is 314800. That ties back to the master format. So you can take information that is, is uh, set up like uh, uh, how much is the exterior closure on a facility, and you can break that into how much of it's concrete, how much of it's steel, how much of it's uh, different products. So you can go back and forth between those, those two tables, and other tables uh, are similar to that. Next slide, please. Um, one other area that we're uh, dealing with in, in tying the uh, – coming up with the overall structure for, um, for a building, uh, building information model is uh, what's called COBE, which is the Construction Operations Building Information Exchange. And that allows information to flow through a building, uh, through, a, through the life cycle of a facility anyway, from specifications through procurement and into utilization. Next slide. Pete, two minutes yep. left. Yep, no problem. Next slide. Um, this just gives you an idea of what the COBE format is on, on the information that's collected. So there's information about the contract, there's information about the design of the, of the uh, facility, and then there's information about the products that are in that, um, how they're installed, how there's, what, what information needs to be submitted, um, how, to com how to commission or um, put the product into service, um, and how you have to maintain the, the, uh, the product after, afterwards. Um, so it collects a lot of information like serial number and model number and uh, what kind of certifications you have to have to uh, install and things like that. And with that, that's really the, uh, the essence of what uh, of most of the uh, efforts that we're, uh, we're undertaking with building smart lines. And I thank you. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is... Um, Bob, yeah? Yes. I think your line is fairly noisy, so after you speak, could you put yourself back on mute with a star two also? Okay. Uh -huh. um, our next speaker is Marsha. Marsha Li Zeng is um, a professor in Kent State, and uh, one of her major research interests is knowledge organization systems, and she's also a member of the ISO project which covers structured vocabularies for information retrieval. Marsha, are you, are you there? Uh, can you hear me? Yes, okay. very well. You will bring up the slides. Um, Peter? Coming up. Okay. All right. Um, my role in participating in the OR is to introduce the work done by the ENCOS folks 
Could you have next slide? Okay. Uh, as we all know that there are many large and good vocabularies in the world, <clears throat> and they are used in organizing, managing, and retrieval information. Uh, maybe not for reasoning, but they are really a good uh, resource for ontology. For example, the Art and Architecture Thesaurus contains over 34,000 concepts and over uh, 130,000 terms. And each term was selected carefully by the experts with at least the three reliable sources for the selecting of the terms and for placing the terms into a hierarchical or associated structure. There are also uh, very large metathesaurus, such as the uh, Unified Medical Language System <coughs> uh, metathesaurus, that contains over one million concepts and five million concept names from uh, by emerging over a hundred biomedical source vocabularies, and some of them are in multi multiple developers' focus has been on the development of this KOS and the integration and the mapping of them. Now there is a new focus, um, which is to explore how to use and reuse these rich vocabularies. So the ENCOS group is actually representing such uh, kind of interest and research. There are ongoing series in the national and international conferences about ENCOS. Next slide. And uh, there are also two major standards that developed for the KOS content developers. One is the uh, American one released at the end of 2005, uh, Z39.19, for the monolingual control vocabularies, which including uh, term lists, um, synonym rings, taxonomies, and thesauri. And there's another one that, based on the already published British standards, and now is transforming into an ISO standard, for structured vocabularies for information retrieval. Next slide. So I'm going to introduce just a few um, the new interests that dealing with the terminology registries and the services. The first one is the high-level Cesori project, which is actually a, a several <coughs> phases project funded by the UK Joint Information System Committee. As you can see that uh, the, there are several large, very large vocabularies are already involved uh, in this project. Next slide. Just like uh, Art and Architecture Thesaurus, the Medical Subject Headings, and the UNESCO Thesaurus. So the uh, project first Base was to map all the schemes and then provide that through machine-to-machine -machine, um, delivering, querying, <coughs> using different kind of protocols that uh, in a different situation. And the phase four just started recently. Next slide. 
The second one I want to introduce is the OCOC Terminology Services. This research focused on providing mappings from a term in one vocabulary to one or more terms in another vocabulary. So far, it has done eight large vocabularies um, based on two kinds of mapping. One is direct mapping, and another is co-occurrence uh, mapping. Next slide. <clears throat> and this particular research has been turned into a product, so OCOC already uh, started to provide its terminology service uh, to its member institutions. As you can see from this slide that uh, as long as you have <coughs> your member, of course, first, uh, as long as you have installed in, through the Microsoft Research Task Pen, their vocabularies will be with you no matter uh, where you are and when you are using that for the purposes of tagging and searching and translation. <clears throat> and all the terms are mapped, as I mentioned. And the members of the, the users of this is over 60,000 libraries in uh, 112 countries and territories around the world. Okay, next one. <clears throat> The third example is the National Science Digital Libraries Vocabulary Registry. It is an ongoing <clears throat> project and basically solving a lot of technology-based issues and encourage members to register controlled vocabularies here. Next. The fourth one that I'm going to introduce is a new project, a three-year project in UK for the archaeological resources. Uh, as you can see that the collaborator is the English Heritage. It's a very, very large digital library and other uh, databases. And they want to develop new methods for linking all these um, databases, vocabularies, and deliver them through different kind of technologies. Next. The last one is the new research in UK on terminology registries and services. It's a study, and they would like to analyze issues related to the potential delivery of a terminology registry in the infrastructure service within the JSC information environment. And uh, as I discussed with them, that their focus, of course, is still on the KOS registry, but would wish to maintain compatibility with more formal AI ontology registries. Next. So I brought this, uh, introduced these five examples that uh, uh, ongoing and really working um, terminology registries and services. Of course, they, the vocabularies like taxonomy and cesori are very, very good resource for uh, selecting vocabularies and some are good for presenting knowledge in a particular domain. And they 
at least usually meet the basic functional requirements such as eliminating ambiguity and controlling synonyms, establishing the hierarchical and associative relationships. But we do have the issues um, whether we will reuse them. Next slide. First issue is that those are the, the vocabulary developed for retrieval purposes and not for reasoning purposes. So you will see that they are less structured. They're not maybe consistent based on logic. And then mostly they have to base on the literary user and the organizational warrant. So you will expect that not uh, completely matching the need of ontologies. Next. The second issue is to uh, about the, the encoding. Most of the services I mentioned is using skulls. Um, so this is a, a different issue because we don't really all use the all. And the reasons I have the next slide that very quickly goes through that I borrow one from the SWOT information architecture here. SWOT is a prototype of an environmental organization and project directory. Next. According to the, um, the source that I cited here, that their ontology has such a structure, as you can see, that has uh, uh, used uh, uh, several taxonomies underneath. Next one. Okay. So the interesting thing here is the cost-benefit trade-offs using RDF goals and all. And my personal experiences of encoding a large Chinese classified source also support this graph. Next one. Okay. The next issue is concept mapping. I know there are lots of issues here. And um, as my experience of using current ontology registries or repositories is that you search something that you assume you find the classes, but actually you are brought to the um, term mapping instead of concept mapping. So I gave some examples here. <clears throat> Next one. The next one I don't think we have discussed or considered a lot is the multilingual and multicultural issues in the mapping processes, including non-English schemes and including uh, the same subject classes that divide, divided by different criteria because of the cultural issues. Okay. All right. That's it. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we... That the, the last slide is the summary of that, and we can discuss that later. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is going to be uh, Denise Bedford from the World Bank, and given her experience, she will speak about the requirements of the OR covering the whole life cycle of an ontology. Uh, that means ontology creation, maintenance, and sharing. Denise, are you there? You need to press Can you start three. Yes, wonderful. Okay. All right. I will wait for the slides to come up. Um, well, what I'm going to talk about today builds very much on what Marcia 
um, has just been talking about. Um, at the World Bank, um, my job is to maintain um, a number of what you might call uh, uh, ontologies from uh, some that are becoming a little bit more rigorous and some that are a little le- uh, less, um, they have less logic involved. But my job involves um, managing multiple. Um, so I thought I would look at what what I think about when I'm creating, uh, maintaining, um, reusing, et cetera. Could I have the next slide, please? And I hope this will make some sense. We also, internal um, to the bank, we have a registry for um, the ontologies that we use. Um, so I'm speaking um, to from an internal registry versus a community registry as well. Okay, so... Um, as Fabian mentioned, um, my everyday work includes creating, adapting ontologies, implementing and maintaining them, and in some cases sharing ontologies to address. Um, the main question for me was, is there a difference between what I expect from my internal registry and repository and what I would expect from an external one? Um, and the, it came down to the difference to some extent, it came down to the difference between whether we're talking about a registry or a repository. Next slide, please. Uh, I thought I would just, uh, many of you have already seen this, but I thought this top quadrant um, characterization of the ontology lifecycle was really important um, and very well put together and uh, because it does talk about, it speaks to creating, populating, validating, deploying, evolving, and maintaining. So next slide, please. I also like the fact that in that view, you had um, issues related to ontology architecture as well as knowledge sources. Okay. So I use both registries and repositories, and I distinguish. It may not be important for um, the work that we're doing in OOR, but... To me, um, the registry can take as a baseline something like ISO 11179, but I have to say that ISO 11179 addresses primarily metadata and um, not the meta information that is needed, um, in my opinion. And I would say if we're looking for something in terms of a registry architecture or structure, we really need to look at what they use in the structured data environment. We need information, not only descriptive information about the ontology, but we need information that is that tells us something about its fitness for use because that's what I look to when I'm making a decision whether to use or not use something that I find within um, in the community. Um, the implication from a repository perspective is that for different types of ontologies, um, I need different architectures. Uh, I, they have different underlying structures and components, so the repository, I think, um, has many more serious implications in terms of what kind of an application is supporting the ontology and whether or not that application is built into the repository or accessible to the repository. Next slide, please. Okay, so one of the things um, about the OOR requirements, um, I think, is that um, we really should be providing a framework for documenting 
um, the features and dimensions that should be um, required uh, that anybody needs to know about in terms of making a decision whether to use an ontology or if I'm designing one basically for um, access by the community, it might help me to guide, it might help to guide me in terms of what things I should think about. I come up with four dimensions and I know I keep, I keep reiterating these dimensions, but they work for me. Um, I need to consider the context and the purpose, the content and the concepts, the structure and the relationships, and the governance. Okay, next slide please. And I will not probably have time to go through each of these, but I will just leave some of the issues for you to think about. Um, in terms of context and purpose, I need to know what domain it represents. Is it a process-oriented? Is it personal? Is it institutional? Does it have a political view? Is it economic? Is it research versus application? Um, is it general topical? Um, if it's a business process-oriented structure and I need topical, I'm probably going to look at only one component of it then, or maybe none of it. Um, does it represent a formal or an informal knowledge domain? Um, is the design top-down or bottom-up? In other words, was it created by users, intermediaries, or developers? This makes a lot of difference to me in terms of, you know, whether or not I'm going to use an ontology I find. Is it intended for human or machine use and application? Um, and what is the intended application context? Is it search, financial analysis, logical inference, simple classification, dynamic clustering, etc.? Okay, next slide, please. In terms of content, um, I'm going. I need to know, and I would hope that a registry would tell me something about the purpose and warrant, and I think this is an excellent point that Marsha just made. Who's the intended audience? What's, what, uh, what is its intended um, um, use? Um, the type of content, is it numbers, data, calculations, ratios, words, um, concepts, rule expressions, engineering equations, um, the degree of ambiguity that's built into the content, what is its representational form? Does it have a usable encoding form or specification, or do I have to do a lot of manual transformations? Is the data distinct from the business rules? So if I find that the data is useful, do I have to um, assume that the business rules um, must apply to my environment or not? Can I, just, can I just take one without the other? And the degree of conceptualization, is it theoretical or applied? Next slide, please. Um, in terms of its structure and representation, I need to know what form the relationships take. Are they, and this is at a very high level, are they grammatical, mathematical, or logical? How do the relationships behave? Um, are we talking about derivational, causal, equivalence, representational, instance, class membership only, et cetera? What's really important for me, and I think Marsha was also reiterating this, is have the relationships been validated? Can I trust them? Um, are they fully subjective? Um, was there grammatical validation only? Has there been some mathematical validation? Is there logical rigor? How is it tested? What's the methodology? I mean, these are the sorts of things that you apply to statistical data, and it's what um, a statistician uses 
when they're deciding whether they're going to use a data set or not. What's the encoding structure? Is their business logic built in? Um, et cetera. Next slide, please. Denise, two minutes left. Okay. I think we're okay. Um, in terms of governance, and this is also a very important one for me, does it have a formal standard set of guiding principles, which I can interpret or adapt, or is it entirely homegrown and serendipitous? How are the guiding principles enforced? What's the change management process, and can I access the changes? Um, is the base uh, content extensible, um, or do I have to use it in its current form only? How current is it? Does it represent a 1980s view, um, or is it a 2008 view, and is the nature of the domain going to change within another six months? Um, and finally, do I trust the organization or the people who have built it and maintained it? Next slide, please, and I think we're on the last one, maybe. Or I can make it the last one. Um, actually, could you go to the next slide, please, or the second to the last slide? This is good. Um, I think that there is value in an OOR simply in terms of knowing what is out there and what we have to use. I have to do a lot of um, networking and searching just to find what ontologies are out there. So just a simple start at an OOR would be immensely valuable to me. We're also working on two other things at the bank right now. One is looking at a business model to make some of our ontologies available in a collaborative space to support shared development. And also we're finally doing the simple publish and subscribe model. But anyway, thank you very much. I hope this has had some value, although I think I'm just recapping what everybody else has said over the last two weeks. So thanks a lot. No, I'm, thank you very much, Denise. I, I think that was very valuable. And will also have an impact on the discussion on the metadata, which we will have next week. And uh, one of the people who are sharing this discussion um, is uh, actually the discussion thread on the Autodoc Summit list is Pat Hayes, who is going to be our next speaker. Pat uh, from the Institute for Human and Machine Recognition. Pat has been involved in many activities in the field of knowledge representation, among other things, uh, developing of RDF and all. And today he's speaking to us as a representative of the Common Logic community. Pat, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Um, well, after listening to the previous um, presentations, I, I, I now am confirmed in my belief that I was correct in telling Peter that I really shouldn't be on this panel at all. Um, because uh, I don't know that what I have to say is directly relevant to the topic, but I'm going to say it anyway, because in part it uh, provides some um, uh, ammunition for, if that's the right term, for Mala's talk next, and um, I think what she has to say does have some value. So um, so I'm just going to talk about um, uh, some things we can do in the, um, the using uh, the common logic, uh, the ISO common logic standard. Um, go to the next slide. Um, Right, that just says uh, the main point that there's a notion of 
Wild West syntax, we call it, which is basically the idea that one can uh, put together virtually any syntactic uh, combination in, in logic without worrying too much about um, whether you're violating your rules. And this bit makes the language a very flexible notation for embedding a lot of other um, uh, formalisms into and uh, while hopefully preserving their syntax. In many respects, I think Psych are ahead of us in that they've been doing this uh, kind of thing for, for many years now, but, but at least now it's uh, sort of official. Um, okay, next slide. Um, never mind the details here. Move, just move on. I, I, this is partly for an audience of logicians. So here's a base, the basic idea of, of the common logic syntax is that, that any name can be used for any purpose. So there's no classification of names into different types, uh, which in, in, very often uh, causes people a lot of grief when they first uh, see it because they're used to thinking in terms of names coming with categorizations, often in the form of metadata. This name indicates a class, this name indicates a property, this name indicates a, a function, whatever. Uh, and the these categories are thought of as exclusive, and common logic specifically denies that. It says you can use any name for any purpose, um, at least as far as the logic is concerned. And moreover, anything that can be named can be quantified over. That's a technical term. What it means is that there's no, uh, there aren't any sort of second-class names that you can, um, uh, you, you, you're not allowed to do something to. Okay, let's uh, move on. Next slide. We should be now on slide five coming up, yes. So just to indicate a really silly example, all of these expressions, uh, which are written in list-like syntax, are legal. So that the first one says, for example, that P is a property uh, which applies to a thing, which is the result of applying P, which is now a function, to itself, which is now an individual. And indeed, such things do exist. Um, um, uh, if, if, if you don't want to use them, that such constructions can be very useful, especially in defining mappings. Uh, move on. Next slide. Uh, so that, that's, there's another one of those expressions from the previous slide. doesn't look at all like conventional logic, um, but in fact it's, uh, it is perfectly respectable and legal common logic, and it's meaningful, um, and in fact um, it's true in many, um, in many models in many interpretations. Um, uh, and moreover, these odd-looking expressions can be processed by a uh, conventional-style uh, inference engine of the kind, for example, that Psych has. And, and indeed, many, many such engines are, are available. Uh, move, uh, next slide. So this is just sums up the, um, the, the, uh, the point. Now, the, there is a, uh, next slide, there's an additional um, uh, device, which is, was familiar, oh, I've, yes, um, there's, uh, you notice that uh, at the beginning there I pointed out arguments, um, in fact, that as, as I try to indicate by putting three dots there, this list just goes on and on, um, so common logic allows quantification over things like that dot, dot, dot. In fact, we use the very same notation formally in the language, as you see in the next slide, to cover all the cases. This is actually from a trick that was developed some time ago. Uh, oh, what happened? Something happened to the slide. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so, uh, that, never mind the details of that if you're not used to reading logic, but uh, it allows you to say, for example, that um, it allows you to, con it defines a notion of conjoining two properties together so that you can form the combined property of being married and in love, and you can even give it a name and then use it that name from, the, from thereafter. And next slide. So that might give you a hint, slide nine now, um, of the, 
I think the slide, some, some of the bits of the previous slide have been left over on this, but never mind, at least on my screen. Um, there are two, there's a famous uh, argument goes on, that has been going on on the, on, on, if you've been reading the email threads on this forum about different ways of representing time, for example, different, you know, they're using the same formal language, but, or they can express the same formal language, but they use it differently. Um, and now one, what one can do here is, is write axioms in the common logic which will, specify equivalences between these different styles of writing things. Um, so that in this particular case, it says that if C is a continuant, and uh, which is a term used by one of the camps in this kind of ongoing dispute, and T is everything a time, and then writing R, C, and T is more or less the same as writing the translation of R applied to the temporal slice of T, which is the old 4D way of describing things. And then in one of those ontologies, one can remove the awkwardness of having to write transfer of R by just saying that X is the transfer of itself. That would be illegal then in the other ontology, but in the, in, in the 4D ontology that says you can just use the same name. So it allows one ontology to, um, or one ontological framework to, uh, and which is now just one theory in the common logic, um, one bunch of axioms, to um, adopt a notational convention which would be illegal in the other one. And the whole thing is expressed in one common overall arching language and indeed can be processed by the same kind of inference engines that do ordinary deductions. Which means we have here a sort of, if you like, a kind of meta-ontology which includes these two mutually inconsistent ontologies as long as it keeps their notations separate and allows each of them to use names in the way that it prefers. Uh, next slide. And slide 10. Uh, this, now, this is a real example that comes up from some work uh, that Mala's been doing, um, or I've been doing with Mala Marotra, um, who is the next speaker, uh, concerning mappings between databases. Now, that slide looks rather ugly. Um, we, we, it's the, the, the general point of this slide is just to indicate how we map a database table into common logic. We describe it as a, as a, as a class, basically, and its rows as, as, as objects, and then regard the column names as functions applied to the rows, which have certain values. Next slide. I hope this slide works. Should be slide 11, um, which again, bits of slide. Oh, well, anyway. Um, and then we can talk about mappings between columns of databases, which it turns out in this particular domain, as Mal will explain, is a critical thing to be able to do um, as, as this general function, which takes two columns and, and a subset of the rows in the first table and produces a, its value, if such a value exists, is a mapping which satisfies this equation, which you can just see at the bottom of the slide. So, again, never mind the details of the logic, but the point is that this, um, this kind of expression would have been, made, would have been illegal in, in almost any conventional logic, but it's perfectly straightforward to do in common logic. One can simply write such things down. It's actually from two, it turns out, it's a third-order expression, if that means anything to you. Um, next slide. Slide 12. Oh, by and the way, Pat, again, Pat, is, yes? is this a refresh tab, not, your, not refreshing the browser, but refresh tab on the VNC uh, client that will help you clean out things that were left behind? Thank you. Also, two minutes left. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, my, unfortunately, I have now lost the slideshow, but I can remember it. Um, the... Uh, the uh, 
Yes, okay. Uh, the, the accents here are, are um, indicative of the kind of ways in which one can ex- define concepts which would be, we discovered, would be impossible to define in OWL, for example, uh, but which are straightforward to write uh, using the uh, common logic notation, uh, which describe various kinds of relationships between these mappings, compositions of mappings, um, uh, able to, we're able to say, define the domains and ranges of the various complex mappings and so forth, and, and give conditions. Um, on the um, uh, on the mappings that uh, arise. Now, I, unfortunately, I have now completely lost access to these slides. So, uh, if you could go to the next slide um, and tell me what it says at the top of it. it says all DL in CL. It says all DL. Right, in right. CL. That's, that's the last slide is this huge, dense. Uh, unreadable mass of stuff, and I put it there simply to, um, uh, as an existence proof, that what this is, is that the whole of OWL-DL um, semantics, um, written out as a collection of um, common logic axioms, uh, using the um, OWL-DL vocabulary, those little things called OWL, colon, intersection of, and so forth, um, are now defined as um, functions and relations of various kinds inside the um, common logic framework. And so with this as an ontology and ordinary common logic reasoning, now admittedly that's a fairly heavy-duty common logic reasoning, but um, one can then simply transcribe, and the next slide gives examples, of um, there are straightforward transcriptions now of the um, uh, of OWL into um, this if this for owl owl ontology in in common logic and there are some examples there showing a little fragment of um, the uh, well-known wine ontology tutorial example uh, written out in XML in the abstract syntax um, and then in the in a um, in a uh, if there's a diagrammatic version as I recall as well uh, but then finally it, using this transliteration into uh, common logic actually in two slightly different uh, namespaces, just to emphasize. So I just really wanted to sort of expose this to the audience here to give a sense of how relatively straightforward it is to define mappings, even quite complex mappings, between alternative notations and logics, which preserve the semantics, even in quite complex cases. Okay, end. Thank you very much, Pat. Our next speaker is uh, Mala Metropa. I'm sorry that I threw that your name. And uh, she uh, was actually introduced by Pat uh, during this talk. She's going to talk about mapping relations across OR resources. Um, Nala, are you there? Hi, yeah. Can you Hi. hear me? Can you yes, hear me? fine. Okay. And uh, okay. I think Peter is bringing up slides right now, so you can start. So um, my uh, uh, presentation will uh, build upon uh, most of the other speakers that have go- uh, that have gone ahead of me, and um, the focus of uh, my presentation is basically on uh, the discovery aspects of um, capturing these various types of uh, relationships that uh, other folks have been talking about. Uh, my background is in the um, analysis of various types of information systems, um, in particular knowledge-based systems uh, uh, such as ontologies, rule bases, databases, etc. 
I I don't see my slides up. Is there? Is is it up or? It is up, but maybe maybe you run from your own desktop, but call out the slide number. Just use my uh, other thing. Okay. Um, so um, uh, yeah, we are on slide one right now. Um, so uh, I just wanted to um, acknowledge that um, recently we have been um, working uh, on an ONR SBIR phase two effort, uh, where we have recently developed. Um, uh, a tool called Expose, which is a clustering tool to help us with the analysis process from various points of view in these different information sources. And um, one of these uh, points of view is discovering uh, mapping, mapping relationships between different information systems. Slide two, please. So um, I am neither a content uh, nor an application developer. Uh, my focus is on building tools which help these developers. So from my point of view, a uh, content developer will um, definitely try to reuse existing ontologies like we have seen from the previous speakers, and uh, they will likely choose various subsets of concepts from various ontologies in the repository, um, and in doing so, they will face certain issues, and that's what I'm trying to list out here. Uh, these are just some of them. Um, they will need to discover, for example, the appropriate terms or axioms or submodels for their usage, and um, they are likely to face uh, the disintegration of context for choosing a certain concept. Um, by looking at related concepts or collaborating concepts or, like Marcia called it, I think, co-occurrence, uh, their job could become easier. Um, the depth or detail of the concept will be as uh, important, um, such as uh, month description in DML uh, is much more detailed than a month concept in Sumo. It has more um, details of uh, days of the month and so on. Um, uh, on the other hand, application developers, uh, I feel, will be using multiple ontologies, and hence the mapping relationships will be very important to them. Um, all aspects of this, such as creating, storing, and retrieving uh, these mappings will be important. And if these relationships are complex, then retrieval tools will need to have the necessary smarts to find these concepts. Uh, slide three, please. So uh, this brings us to the infrastructure needs of the OOR. I believe that in such an environment, uh, Cognitive-aided tools are very, very necessary, which will work in a human-machine collaboration mode because um, these mappings are going to be uh, intricate and tricky um, to, uh, to find. The second thing that will be important is the formalization of the relationships uh, that are discovered, which is uh, why um, uh, both Pat and me have been collaborating on this, these hard issues. The formalisms will need to be general enough to cover a wide variety of relationships and also um, across different types of multiple representations for these ontologies. Um, I think they will need to be formal at a lower level um, uh, 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 where they're interacting with the machine, but uh, it, they will need to be uh, human-readable and uh, human-manipulable um, at the upper level because all of us are not... Uh, logicians by training. Uh, slide number four, please. So um, during our analysis, we have discovered many types of relationships, 
And uh, here I'm trying to categorize some of my results. Um, obviously, the simplest is the full equivalence between terms, such as PhD thesis and doctoral thesis in, in two university ontologies, for example. Um, but note that these are compound terms, and a close examination of these axioms will be needed to equate them. Um, partial equivalence is something that occurs more often and in more subtle ways, um, such as one ontology may have all the instances while the other one may have an abstract or a general class. Um, uh, so one could have, say, Toyota, Honda, and all that, and another one would have the concept of car. So um, that, that scenario is very possible. A more common one is when um, various types of property restrictions uh, connect concepts into ontologies. I have often seen, um, in fact, inverse mappings where arguments are switched, such as source and destination for move-in and move-out concept. Um, also, different authors will tend to create the same concept in a positive and a negative way, and you'll see an example of that uh, later. Um, there can be ternary relationships, such as transitivity. Such a, so uh, country code could be related um, to task unit and a task unit in two different ontologies. Um, we have often found um, recurring sets of patterns, such as cliches, um, which could be made equivalent across two ontologies, and uh, uh, these are very useful for reuse um, aspects. So um, uh, in the, uh, now I will provide uh, more concrete examples of these relationships, um, not all of them, but some of them, uh, which we have um, uh, sort of started to formalize. Some of them we have started formalizing. So uh, uh, next slide, number five. So here is an example of the uh, same biological concept, nucleotide, from Sykes Biochemistry Microtheory, which has been modeled in two different ways. On the left one is a model where the sugar is distinguished at the first level, um, that is deoxy and ribo distinctions are there, and the bases are specified at the second level. On the right, the reverse order for distinction is present, giving us a base-dependent representation. And both of them are valid representations, only we have to um, know that. Um, uh, slide number six, please. Um, this slide shows the actual site axiom clusters that helped us discover these two models. The take-home point is that um, the differences in the model is encapsulated in the formulation of the terms themselves, uh, such as deoxyribonucleotide or adenine nucleotide, etc. The model uh, itself is uh, not explicitly specified anywhere. Uh, here is an example for, uh, from the DARPA RKS project where I had analyzed several ontologies built by multiple SMEs. Um, the challenge problem was representing various military COAs or course of action plans and critiquing them. And this is a CMAP representation of the concept on um, no art artillery in reserve pattern by two different SMEs, and it's critiquing whether having a reserve task unit is good or bad utilization of reserve, uh, resources. Um, and the left call-out points to the agent being present or absent, and the right call-out is bringing attention to the fact that the critiquing score is switched. Uh, in one, it is bad. In the other one, it's good. So it's, it's just a kind of a reversal uh, of the uh, concept. And... Um, uh, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail on that one. But uh, slide number eight. Um, here is an example for a project we are doing for Rome Labs, and I'm collaborating with uh, Pat Hayes on this one. 
uh, under this project, we are um, analyzing database schemas for uh, from the Discover project in Rome Labs to expose uh, hidden relationships between data sets. And this slide shows a partial snapshot of the mapping interface in expose for uh, database schemas. At the top are uh, the columns, headers for the database uh, that can be potentially mapped. Uh, the bottom panel shows the instance matches from for the highlighted set of column names for the two, two databases. And uh, so we are going from the instances to the uh, column na uh, names. And uh, for example, here task type for uh, aircraft database has been flagged as a possible match to MSN class for mission uh, database based upon instance matches. Now, well, two minutes left. Hi, number nine. So here we are showing how to formally represent this mapping in common logic using past formalisms for mapping uh, from the last talk. Uh, the from to concept is very handy that Pat has uh, created, and that represents uh, the relationship between task types from aircraft uh, type and mission class of mission. And uh, the for all construct basically extracts those rows from the subtable of aircraft type where the instance values under task type is equal to the MSN class instance values. Slide number 10. Um, here is another more interesting um, example of partial equivalence, which required a domain expert's interpretation. Um, expose flagged a spatial concept like base ID from friendly base database to be mapped to an, uh, a concept from mission database uh, based on some shared instances. And this connection between the data sets exists only for events that were of type takeoff or landing, and that's um, something that we had to get from the domain expert. Slide number 11. Uh, this slide shows some of the axioms required to represent this kind of a hidden relationship um, and uh, so that a column in friendly base and a column in mission could be mapped. So basically, C1 is the intermediate table that we had to build, um, uh, and we, have, we formulated from friendly base for event types uh, for takeoff or landing. And once C1 is formed, then we can apply the same technique as before, find the corresponding rows in the mission class. So in conclusion, slide number 12, please. Um, we have shown that various types of mapping relationships can be useful in different scenarios, such as federated query for reuse or in, uh, interoperation or integration, and sometimes even tracking content, such as uh, one would tend to do in intelligence analysis. But because of the intricacies that are involved in finding these subtle relationships, I believe that we will need cognitive-based tools in human-machine collaboration mode to analyze and discover these various shapes of mapping relationships. And um, also we would need uh, formalized representation for these um, because that will be critical in formulating our transformation rules so that these uh, OOR resources could be maximally utilized. And um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, our next speaker is Rob Baskin from NASA. And um, Rob is um, actually our last panelist, but his talk will be sweet. Rob, are you there? Rob, start sweet, please. Rob Raskin, uh, uh, already Okay, with can us? you hear me now? 
Yes. Okay. Apologize. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, Sweet has been around about five years. It was it's been developed by NASA for use in the Earth System Science domain. Uh, slide two, please. Uh, this was funded originally to assist uh, search, uh, discovery, and search of resources, but is now uh, has broader appeal as part of a, a community standard for Earth system science. Uh, next slide, slide three. Uh, I, I guess you might have to go by your own deck for now. I am having a little bit of trouble with the shared deck. So, uh, please call it the slide number. Okay. Okay, no problem. So slide three shows the, uh, the diagram of the ontologies that are part of this, this uh, sweet family uh, of ontologies. And it includes uh, faceted ontologies that are shown on the right side. They're grouped together on the right on, on slide three, and then some uh, integrative ontologies on the left. And th this was done because uh, the way science has progressed over time, the, the predominant scientific model has been one of reductionism, as breaking concepts into finer and finer detail, smaller and smaller parts, like, you know, the, uh, and so the, these were the, the facets on the right, and they include uh, different substances, such as the different chemical species, different processes, like uh, uh, absorption of uh, solar radiation, uh, different realms of the Earth, like the uh, Earth's surface and the, and the, the, the solid Earth, uh, physical properties, and so forth. So this was the way we originally uh, organized uh, this, this collection of ontologies. But in Sweet became fairly popular uh, as a sort of a, sort of like middleware in the sense that groups that would use it would put a layer on top of existing ontologies and then they would extend it. And that's, so that's how it's, it's normally been used as a sort of a uh, as, as something that can be extended by others rather than just used uh, as is. But we found in our evolution that it was going to be advantageous to reorganize the ontologies to support this community effort. So the next slide, uh, slide four, uh, describes sort of a schematic for the, how, how the um, our, our redesign would be for, for this next version of, of suite, which is uh, which just being complete. And in this redesign, the organization math and, say, theoretical physics, down to applications on the bottom, and then everything uh, everything in between those two. And this way, it turned out this was a better way of redesigning the ontologies because it enabled users who are a group that would focus on a particular specialty to make it easy to just plug in their piece, just just plug in their, their specialized component without having to look at, uh, without having to fit their change into several other existing ontologies. So the following slide, uh, slide five, shows how the new set has been been reorganized that there's still this 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 uh, going from theoretical to applied so from uh, math on top and then science then the planetary science next run down finally down to applications but this shows in greater detail what those uh, what those uh, ontologies actually look like 
So now each each box is, is an ontology, but now there are like 60 of them rather than, say, 12 of them that we originally had. This modular design uh, makes it easy to uh, makes it easy to control importation to know what imports what. Uh, the importation just goes from top to bottom, so the 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 theoretical concepts get imported into the applications, but uh, but not vice versa. Then we also have a separate wrong off on the right upper right corner on informatics. So information is kind of independent of these these science domains, and so we have separate ontologies for uh, for, for information science. The next slide, slide six, kind of gives an idea of what's included in the numerical ontologies. We had to do a lot of work on that. We were hoping that some of the numerics, some of the basic science, theoretical science, we hoped that would be done already, but it turns out that it hasn't. So, so we had to develop these, and this included Cartesian products. Uh, fuzzy concepts, fuzzy sets, uh, and then we uh, we developed a spatial ontology and temporal ontology that were developed out of the numerical ontologies because um, space and time are just special cases of of numbers of, of a number line, uh, or at least in the case of time it's one dimension. In the case of space, it's a three dimensional three dimensional space. The next slide, uh, slide seven. Just gives an idea of, of some of the, the the components of the data ontology that we have, and this includes uh, provenance, so the uh, the uh, metadata associated history, the source lineage of the data, then um, how data is stored, what kind of services can be applied, to the um, kinds of information you need to interpret it, like units, scale factors, offsets, uh, the quality of it, uh, special values, so forth. Next slide, slide eight, gives a description of of our of our website that we use to support this kind of collaboration. So this collaboration is just getting started. Uh, this site, uh, planetont.org, uh, enables us to uh, register ontologies, and within and once an ontology is registered, it, it tells you what the dependencies are between your ontologies and say other ontologies that that uh, of other registered ontologies that you're importing, and then if if a if a, one ontology should change, then there's an RSS feed that that informs all downstream dependent ontologies that to tell it that this this uh, dependent ontology has, has has made some change. So this this onto, this ontology site is intended for developers who are sharing ontologies, and it's for essentially coming up with best practices. Um, for instance, getting around some limitations that are in OWL. For instance, the, if you have to represent a quadruple rather than a triple, what are some of the ways that it could be done? Um, commonalities such as units, uh, intervals, um, uh, kinds of things that, that um, you know, could be done in many different ways, but to help have a discussion site to look at how we can come up with common, common ways of, of doing things. So in a sense, so uh, to bring this back home as to how we'd be involved with this open repository, we think of Suite as, as a community in itself. It's not just an ontology. It's a collection of, of Suite and users of Suite who want to work together to come up with standard ways of doing things. And you know, the idea that this ontology is going to be a dynamic thing, that we'd be all, always working together, 
to, uh, in the Earth system science, to have some upper-level ontology, but with the, not, with the understanding that users, that uh, end users will want to create extensions to that in different specialized uh, specialized areas. And the specializations could be specialized science areas, or it could even be specialized uh, service uh, services as well. We have a um, uh, a summit coming up next month on um, services, data and services associated, so data and service ontologies, and uh, for informatics. So these informatics ontologies, uh, this, this this meeting would be, uh, uh, I believe it's May 15th and 16th in the D.C. area. If anyone's interested in in uh, service ontologies, you can can let me know. Uh, the final slide, uh, slide six, uh, slide nine, excuse me, that uh, describes resources. Uh, there's a web page for Suite. Uh, it does not have Suite 2.0 up yet. Uh, that's still in the final stages of um, organization that should be up uh, in the coming week or so. Uh, that, that should be up. And then we have uh, then a planetont.org. It's our uh, ontology uh, development sharing site. And finally, there's a site that shows this application, this ontology in use for an application for, for search. This is uh, to uh, enable search without that keyword match, and also the search would enable not just uh, web sites, but it's linked to uh, journal articles. Uh, eventually, we have it linked to skills, to expert skills, so it'll actually uh, return uh, capabilities of, of people as well. Um, it also will do a, a Google search if, uh, if you ask for it. So it, it, it's more of a comp comprehensive search than just a pure pure Google, uh, but still gives you uh, results that Google could, could give you. Uh, and that's just based on the fact that we have our the suite mapped to uh, some uh, keywords on um, some journals, uh, so we can get journal articles, and then in the process of getting mapped to some skills for some users. So with that, I'll uh, stop. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, this concludes our presentations. Um, next up, and we will have the discussion. Um, there are two ways uh, for you, for everybody, to raise their hands uh, so that um, I can recognize you. And preferably, you go to the uh, chat room and use the button which shows the hand, which. Uh, Several people already did, and that shows me that. Oh uh, no, and, and nobody did it before, but now somebody did. And but I, make sure that I see your name, otherwise I can't call you out. Anonymous two is not very informative. Um, but this is one way. The other way, if you don't have access to the chat room for some reason, you can also press uh, one one, I believe. Um, on your phone, and then Peter will see that you are uh, see you, and uh, will inform us that somebody's on the phone line. But uh, I actually prefer the the chat room, if possible. So uh, the first, uh, the person who will be the first person to talk, to, to speak, you have to press star three to unmute yourself. Uh, sorry, that was the wrong hand. Um, okay. I already answered the question on the chat. Thank you. Oh. Okay, Ravi, you're, you're next in line. 
All right, Ravi here. Um, I have uh, just a request to the speakers to look at the chat session questions. Um, but the foremost question in my mind for the panel, whoever wants to answer, is that um, we see that a simple relationship of objects or events or things uh, is often uh, Ravi. not... Yeah. Ravi, could you speak up very soft? Yes. Uh, is it better? That's prompted by Duck, too. Yes. Um, is the simple... It is found that the simple relationship, like what we find in hierarchies and levels, usually found in taxonomies, are not often very accurate, informative, or possible in search and knowledge discoveries. So is there an activity going on which now classifies or categorizes these relationships, uh, either a single or a chain, like concatenation, or a value chain of relationships, which bring better and better understanding among the things that we are developing the ontology for. Ravi, uh, which panelists did you address? I could, it could be addressed even to Dr. Um, uh, our last speaker, Dr. Raskin, or it could be addressed to Mala, Dr. Mala Mayorotra. Uh, this is this is Rob Raskin. Uh, I think it depends on the applications that are are intended. Uh, some ontologies may be better suited to some app, uh, some applications other than others, uh, and maybe that needs to be articulated explicitly uh, as to what the purpose you know, might be for um, for some of these ontologies. Uh, like you say, some of them are just taxonomies, simple taxonomies, and uh, you know maybe we need within the repository to have some kind of rating or ranking of not ranking but a, a, a classification of the ontologies to really explicate to what extent it has deeper deeper semantics than just a hierarchy yeah. um, this is Mala yeah. uh, Ravi if I understand it are you Mala saying? could you speak up also um, is this better yes hardly um, uh, uh, could you get so closer to the phone or something yeah, there is some uh, noise here. Uh, this is good. So, uh, if I understand you right, Ravi, uh, you're trying to ask the question if our current way of uh, classifications with taxonomies is adequate or not? Uh, no, I'm saying uh, taxonomies generally address uh, hierarchical relationships. And uh, what we are after in knowledge discoveries is a neural relationship more. Like it's our what? mind reasons, goes through logic and finds value of information. I don't know how well these have been mapped, but if we could think of a value chain of information, we would uh, benefit more by filtering out simple relationships that don't really explicitly add value to the logic or discovery. 
This, this is Denise. I think I'd like to comment on, on that if it's okay. Um, I agree with you that um, there are two different structures in what you're talking about. Um, classification is one type and uh, more um, semantic network structures are another where you, you have stronger meaning associated with the links between classes or terms. Uh, but I don't think that it's one or the other, and I don't think we want to filter out one. I think, as uh, Dr. Raskin was saying, you simply want to make sure that the that the application, that you're clear on the application. And this is why when I look at a number of the ontologies that are out there, I have to discard a number of them because they are, they say that they are, um, they describe themselves as, as having significant knowledge mapping capabilities, but when it comes down to it, they're simple classification schemes. So I, I think we need to start first by characterizing the architecture and the purpose of different ontologies. I would also say that the term taxonomy needs a definition because in the biological sciences, it means a hierarchy, but in many other domains, it it means many other things. Ravi, okay. uh, did this yeah. answer your question? Yes, it does. It does. It raises a lot of questions further, but those are for me to ponder on and ask again by email. Good. So um, I believe Tuck wanted to uh, address that as well. Tuck. Thank you so much. Yeah, please. Uh, you're muted, Doug. Star three. Maybe you muted your own phone. Any Hi, can you, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Yes. Okay. Um, there was an element in the question which I wanted to uh, call attention to because it's a slightly uh, slippery slope, dangerous thing to um, to think in terms of, um, which was um, uh, that some ontologies would be uh, good or bad. Um, um, in general, uh, they, they serve purposes, they serve communities, um, and distinctions that are made in one and not made in another are usually for some purpose. And so one of the things we learned um, early on, I think about 1987 in Building Psych, was that there wasn't going to be one ontology. We'd have to define um, explicit contexts or micro-theories, and, um, and the fact that X is a... Um, subtype of Y in one micro-theory um, uh, doesn't necessarily preclude um, it not being, or maybe even um, the opposite in another um, um, in another ontology. And so um, I think it's, that, that's one of the reasons why um, mapping um, across um, uh, large collections of ontologies is a complicated uh, business because um, there, there is no correct truth. There's simply usefulness for various purposes. Now, uh, if we cannot preconceive all the purposes beforehand, because we hope that ontologies will grow in their practice and use the downstream IT kind of solution engine uh, for, you know, proliferation of knowledge or for discovery of new things. So, if we can't presuppose the applications we have in mind, does it mean each time we think of new application, we will develop into ontology? A 
Um, if no, uh, none of the panelists want to... Or is there one of the panelists who wants to answer the, the follow-up question? Okay, maybe we leave it at that and give Leo a chance to, to get involved. Leo? Do we need anything? We can't see you, Leo. Star 3, using your own phone. Okay, maybe can ask Pat to to jump in uh, ahead while Leo is solving his technical difficulties. Pat? Actually, Doug is also in line. Uh, Doug, sure. Can you hear me? I, I, yes. Go okay. Ahead. Did Leo just get on board? Sorry, I didn't realize I was muted. Okay, I'll I'll back out. Uh, yeah. So the the question uh, uh, was uh, basically to Rob. Uh, and it's uh, on the on uh, on the chat session too, uh, and and that was a question about what methodology did you use to uh, uh, construct the suite ontologies? Uh, in other words, use cases, requirements, uh, competency questions, and then uh, you know review process uh, and and or gateway criteria that you decided uh, uh, when they were good enough. Okay, we, we started with use cases, indeed, uh, and we continue with use cases to make the modifications uh, as, as well. Uh, as far as review goes, we have uh, a community that is providing input. Uh, this is through the uh, Earth Science Information Partner, ESIP uh, Federation. They will ultimately be the, man the uh, owners of the uh, ontology and, and maintain uh, maintain uh, management of it. And so they provide feedback uh, along the way, uh, as well as from the, the, the many groups that have created, on, created layers on top of suite. We've tried to incorporate their feedback into, into it. Does that answer your questions? Uh, yeah, a, 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 a kind of a continuation is, um, um, how do you know when they agreed? I mean, uh, so so you're you have a community that votes? Not a formal one, no. We've we've thought about that, but we rejected that uh, simply because there are too many people, too many there are too many outside people who would be excluded from from the process. We didn't want to didn't want to do that. Uh, we we've always found consensus that hasn't to date that hasn't been a problem of uh, the, the nice thing about ontologies is they the, the same as clause where you can still add something without removing something else so you can add additional way of saying the same kind of thing additional way of doing the same kind of thing without uh, having to offend someone who likes it another way okay thank you Pat, I think you're next in line. Yes, thanks. Sorry, I was pressing the wrong damn number. Um, 
Um, what I was really wanted to say was to sort of um, to, to to underline what Doug had said about multiple points of view, but I think it raises a broader issue it, about sort of ways of thinking about um, uh, the purpose of a repository or the purpose of perhaps using ontologies at all. I think for many of us, many of the people are represented today, for example, and, and more, more broadly in, in the community, the, 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 sort of the whole point of, of getting involved with this whole technology, this whole game, is to try and converge on agreed vocabularies, terminologies, or at the very least, uh, provide mappings that allow allow mutual um, uh, alignment of ideas, and, and, and perhaps the sort of extreme cases. I think um, you know Barry's vision of there being a, a kind of an actual truth in some sense, a sort of scientific consensus that that the ontologies would be ultimately uh, uh, aimed at, aimed towards, even if they never actually got there. Um, you might call it a sort of scientific view of ontologies, and then there's a, a much more sort of um, a looser sort of more confederacy view of ontologists, which I think, you know, underlies psych and uh, many of the, much of the thinking about the semantic web in which you sort of basically, as you say, ontologists have limited purposes and it's nice if they can collaborate together uh, and one does it as much as one can but one doesn't worry too much about the fact there are multiple points of view. And when, in fact, on the contrary, one has to sort of supply infrastructure to support multiple points of view. And I think maybe we need to all bear these two perspectives in mind because in many ways they're pointed in opposite directions and in terms of where should we go and it might help to clarify the discussions if we if we sort of ask ourselves which which of the two were we were most um most um interested in um end of speech um pat do you mean um given the or that that the or should be built with uh, in a way that it supports only one of these I mean, I don't, for us to uh, exclude either of these perspectives on ontology. No, I agree, but I think that um, it, it's the, the pressures on the design of the OR are very different from the two points of view. So, for example, quality control is a central issue for the first, and it's, if anything, uh, um, a, 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 a problem for the second. And um, there are, so, so I just, it, it just, it was a sort of observation, really, that maybe it would be helpful in our discussions if we use these, bear in mind that there are people in this community who have very different, I suspect, different orientations with regard to this, this, this uh, classification. I mean, it would be very nice if we could come up with one framework that get everybody happy, but if that's not possible, it might be better to have two frameworks. Thank you. Peter, you're next. Yes, I have two comments to make. Uh, one to uh, Rob Raskin. Uh, I, I have to admit, I, rec I became aware of your work uh, way too late uh, to realize that uh, in your sweet and planet on the Hawk site, I mean, you have already in the, uh, been working on an OOR kind of effort for such a long time. And since there is this uh, OOR team effort, uh, which is cast as an implementation effort, uh, independent of the Ontology Summit 2008 uh, initiative, which essentially is a, an intellectual discussion, on the same subject matter, uh, I would love to uh, have you join us in the OOR team 
because the OR eventually, I mean, as most of us see it, uh, will become sort of a federated uh, set of uh, open ontology repositories that could sort of uh, be synergistic uh, with one another. So we would love to have you join into that effort. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd be very, very interested in participating in that. Thank, thank you. And, and the, the other question is to, to, to Doc, uh, Dr. Leonard. And since you brought up this, this, uh, the lock effort, uh, do you see enough differentiation, I mean, for the overall team implementation effort, not, again, I mean, not the, not the, this intellectual discussion to exist? And if so, uh, since we obviously don't know too much about them or else, I mean, they would have shown up uh, today or on the last few weeks or next week, I mean, in, in the discussions, uh, how do you suggest we we sort of uh, get aligned with, with or, or col- uh, become collaborative with that effort? Uh, probably the simplest way to do that is for me to send you, um, and we can post, a white paper um, um, giving folks uh, an overview of LARC, um, and people can decide amongst themselves, plus there will be contact information for um, the LARC um, um, consortium members. Um, and um, we're, we're, as you might imagine, a small fish in that particular um, uh, pond. We're a small member of that team. Um, and so talking looking at that and then contacting some of the people who are really leading that effort would probably be the, the appropriate next step. And, and then uh, once that dialogue gets underway, um, then decide um, um, what's appropriate in terms of the relationships between the two efforts. Yeah, that, that, that would be most wonderful. I mean, it would be heavily indebted. In fact, I mean, I, I would just throw this question out to everyone who is online now. I mean, is, is, I mean, besides Doug, is anybody else involved in this block effort? I mean, in particular, I, I know we have Peter Haas from, uh, Kaus Ruhr, uh, here, and, and he is driving the, the, uh, Project Neon, uh, repository, and, uh, Ontology effort. Uh, are, are you guys uh, involved in the lock effort? Peter Hart, you're online. Uh, Maybe you've left us. Yeah, I didn't drop down. But but uh, Peter will be on our panel next week, so we'll have another chance to ask him. But but uh, Doug, thank you very much uh, for suggesting that, and we I definitely look forward to 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 seeing that input from you. Okay, the, the, oh, I'm sorry. Um, okay, the next uh, next line would be uh, Michelle. I um, ask everybody who ha- asked a question and doesn't want to ask another question to press the button which raised your hand again. That means uh, this way I can see who actually has another question. Um, Michelle? Yes, hello. Uh, it was noted that the architecture for an ontology repository may differ depending on the ontologies held, uh, and I extrapolated that maybe that also meant uh, d- differ based on the relationships between the held ontologies. And if that's so, I suspect that that's not simply 
based on the complexity. It's a dictionary, it's a taxonomy, a relational data map, ontology and ontology with an upper ontology. So I, I have two. Um, the first one is, A, can we, this is to all the panelists, can we have one architecture approach that will address the needs of open ontology repositories? And two, if not, uh, and that first statement is accepted, what, what characteristics are there that direct you towards selection of an architecture structure? And if you have any examples, that'd be great. Can I begin by answering that, by asking a question uh, for clarification? Can you say more what you mean by architecture? Um, because I can think of several different possible interpretations. The, the actual framework for uh, housing the, 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 the structural map that you would put around um, how to house the information, the different communications that need to pass between those, it would not be the actual ontology of ontology. It wouldn't be the description. It wouldn't be the gatekeeping requirements. It would be if you need a gatekeeper. Uh, so it's a structural uh, object representation. Does that help? Not much, no. Um, no. I'm starting trouble understanding what this would be. I mean, what would someone use this for if it was available? The, the, architect, okay, the architecture itself would say um, you need to be able to hold ontologies and access them via query. Um, the ah, okay. query system, uh, the, the, the types that are held in here are of these types and thus can be accessed. Here we have a gatekeeper that when someone comes in, they have to pass through this part of the system architecture. So the actual system architecture to hold the, the repository itself and manage it. Okay, I see. Thanks. That's not fair. I'm going to have to answer now. <laughs> well, okay, then I'll answer that. Then I, 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 okay, I, I think that um, at that level, if I understand it properly, then my answer would be, uh, yes, it can. That, that could be common uh, for a large variety of different kinds of ontology, let's put it that way. You know, written in different notations uh, of different kinds, uh, word lists, uh, um, taxonomies, uh, owl ontologies, things written in advanced logics. I think they could all be uh, put into a, a common framework of the kind you've described, if I understand you properly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's feasible. This is Denise. I'm sorry. I'm, I can't get into chat. I keep getting thrown out, so I apologize. I cannot raise my hand. Um, so, Peter, can you tell me when I might be able to answer? Oh, just go ahead. Is that okay? I don't, yeah. I don't mean to be rude and jump in. No, 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 that's fine. Let's stop. Okay. I, I would actually take a slightly different view because as, on a daily basis, I'm working with different types of ontologies. And if we're talking about at the data model level for the concepts, the relationships, what I need to know about the entities within an ontology, um, I would say that there might be um, a subset of all of the elements in the data model that could be used to represent 
sum of the um, aspects of an entity, but not not all of them. I I have to move from one type of type of data structure to another if I switch from one type of ontology to another. So I would say the answer to that is yes and no. Yes for a subset of the parts of an ontology, but not for all the parts of all ontologies. Now, that's on, uh, ontologies, uh, singular uh, ontology that within a given domain space, or is that a the collection of the ontologies within the repository and how they interact? Um, it, it, the domain space is more metadata related than it is the actual entities in the ontology itself, the architecture of the ontology, or that's at least my experience. So I would say um, it's it's on both levels, I think, but um, that's one of the reasons why I distinguish between a registry and a repository. Mm-hmm. But I may be totally, uh, you may have totally different experience than I do. Oh, I've, I've seen it both ways, and I think I've seen it work well in specific domains. Um, and frankly, I'm too new to the broader uh, uh, cross-domain spaces that I've only worked in specific cases of cross-domain. And so we've, we've been able to restrict that very closely and been more aligned in the re- with re- registry work than repository. And so that's why I'm uh, asking these questions so that we can iron them out. I think they're really good questions. Yeah. yeah can I just quickly jump in? I, I actually hearing the last speaker, and I got lost on who was speaking what. Um, it, I, let me withdraw my my confidence. I, I think you and I are talking across purposes slightly. I, I meant that a, thing, a single uniform. It's not totally impossible to imagine a single uniform. Um, you might call it sort of metadata access to, to various ontologies, i.e. Um, one that said, yes, this is a taxonomy and here's how to access it and so forth. Um, whether A single uniform access to all the concepts in a variety of ontologies I think is not feasible. And I'd agree right. with you there. At least I can't think of how to do it. Yep. I, yeah, that's why I was trying to distinguish between registers and repositories. Yeah. I, exactly. I, I, I like that distinction. Thank you very much. Yeah. The difference between the metadata access tool to to the various types versus to um, the actual concepts within. Yeah. And there's and there is that one other dimension too that I don't think we've talked about at all in any of the or maybe we haven't I've missed it, which is that meta information, which is its fitness for use. Um, and I don't think we've tackled that aspect, and if you talk to statisticians when they're trying to to determine whether or not they can use somebody else's data and bring it into one of their um, um, their equations, basically, there's a whole other set of information that they need. They, they call it meta information. So, and I think that probably does fit within the the scope of the Ontology Summit 2008 and would fit under the subsection of quality, which is under is in the quality and gatekeeping discussion threads. 
that the meta information would be about the quality or fitness for use by specific users in specific circumstances. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. Any okay. Other? So, excuse me, go ahead. I was just seeing if there were any other panelists who, who had an opinion on uh, one system architecture and then the lower level of the um, what, what uh, characteristics would direct you towards a particular architecture structure. All right, then that's that. Thank you. Leo, uh, I think you were first, then Ravi. Leo, we don't hear you. At least I don't hear you. No, we don't see him on chat either. But he did mention he, he might have to go, so ah, okay. he left. Um, Ravi, are you yes. available? Yes, I'm. Uh, are you able to hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Can hear you. Keyboard too. Me, Peter? Yes, we can hear you, but you need to speak up for for the sake of How about the now? audience. How about now? Uh, slightly better, but go ahead. Okay, the first one is a sequel to what my uh, champion of the architecture thread in uh, ontology summit asked, Michelle. I I think it brings a lot of good responses and requests to the speakers and the other participants is to please. Uh, give us some threads and thoughts that come to your mind on uh, on some of these aspects. So, uh, so um, for example, uh, when Pat said, if I heard it, it was Pat, I think, it was a comment from Pat, I think, that uh, one single repository cannot possibly meet the uh, concepts that are in multiple ontologies. So uh, I, I will now start voicing my professional little bit uh, plant at uh, repository uh, construction. The architectural principles that would help us would be something like what is inside the built-in functionality of the repository and what is outside it. Outside would be specific ontological engines that pertain to one or more ontology or that relate to multiple ontologies. But that the base would be things like what Denise and Michelle have been talking would be things that are native in terms of meta models, metadata, meta information that, that they mentioned. And this is just a thought. But the real reason I raised my hand was to ask a question to Mala and possibly to Dr. Raskin. Um, when uh, you have shown, let's say, concepts like date or time or interval in multiple ontologies and how they relate, um, the thought process comes to mind is that there are transformation algorithms, like we go from Euler um, 
to other Cartesian coordinate system and to go from R theta to XYZ. So these are natural translations in terms of, let's say, physics, astronomy, or geometry. Uh, are there similar concepts when you take these multiple ontologies that define time or interval differently? So, um, so the, the example that I was showing with the mapping relationship across data sets, uh, databases, um, I mean, it's, it's not in, in the, um, the uh, area that you're talking about of uh, uh, these mathematical transformations, but uh, those are transformations that we're trying to capture in CL. Um, are you restricting your question to just just those sort of vector type of transformations? Or? I thought that would be an example to begin with, and we could go to more complex concepts, but even time and interval and, and the notion in different ontologies of, uh, and the logic by which they are handled might be different. If we could figure out uh, and yeah, the way they, for example, the ML cut, uh, the time space is different from the sumo uh, time the way they slice it is different. So, um, transformation believe, engines from one to know, another. If you examine the uh, two ontologies, there could be some transformation rules that can be set up, both at the terminological differences are there and, and then the actions could connect them. So, these and are hard to map? These are hard to map or easy to map? It depends. I mean, uh, like, uh, some of them could be just uh, properties that are, uh, you know, uh, that need, a new property needs to be created by uh, in this mapping. Uh, I think Pat and me, we have discussed these sort of things before, and um, it's just sort of we have barely scratched the surface on that, and I don't have a clear answer right now, but there, there are some messy uh, mappings that, that can happen, and which requires these sort of CL kind of uh, formalism. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marla. Um, if I could just interject, I, I mean, the, the time interval example, points intervals, is a bit, I mean, it's, in some ways it's a very simple example, but it is because so much work's been done on it. If you were to add up all the all the man hours that have been spent examining the different ways of describing that particular topic, it would be horrendous. Um, uh, you know, I don't think one should take success in that domain as indicative of likely success in more complex domains without a lot of human work. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's good. I, I suspected that it is, unlike mathematical transformations, this would be concept... Uh, or semantic transformations, and they would be harder, right? That's what I take from Pat's comment. Yeah, Pat, I think that... Uh, Hard, grand, harder to get right, the, yes. In the grand sweep of uh, human history, um, all that work is just a point in time. But um, seriously, um, the, um, the part of the problem is not just the theoretical um, understanding and the theoretical mapping, um, but some of the ugliness and inefficiency 
um, comes because of the differences in representation. So um, if in one um, ontology you can represent something like um, during March of 2008, and in another system um, you actually have to state that as a disjunction of 31 separate um, um, dates on which it might happen, um, that's not conceptually difficult, it's just um, ugly. And very often you end up with um, uh, something that's primitive in one system turning into a big disjunction or um, even worse, some sort of existentially quantified statement in another ontology. Amen. Thank you. Um, okay, there's nobody on the queue, um, so I... We'll take the opportunity to ask Pat a question. Pat, you, um, you showed the transformation uh, example, and you said that's um, well, computationally not trivial. Um, I, um, I tried to do something like uh, implementing actually features of uh, ECO, which is an extension for, to CL, um, yeah. in an ordinary first-order logic uh, reasoner. And while, while the theory works fine, the, the implementation or the uh, just doesn't terminate in a reasonable amount of time. So, what is, are there implementations of CL and uh, ICO? Um, we're working on an ICO implementation right now. Um, it will be incomplete, uh, but hopefully useful. Um, I don't think any complete, as to say, complete in the logical theoretical sense implementation of any of these um, logics would be computationally feasible at the present time. Well, um, so theoretically, it's not possible to even. I mean, um, well, no, it's sequence variables, you have an incomplete theory anyway. Uh, well, there, uh, yes, um, there are ways around that. Um, the, you have to restrict um, um, the use of the sequence variables, but, but those restrictions... No, no sane human being would ever want to go outside those restrictions in the first place. Um, so that doesn't worry me. Um, <laughs> but okay. you're right. I mean, we're talking, we're talking as theoreticians here, as you and I, and we can talk about this stuff all day long. Um, but the, the, um, I think the utility of, of, of theoretical exercises, if you like, like the one on my last slide, uh, sem, sem, uh, penultimate slide, are that they show fairly uh, decisively that one has not made any, they're basically semantic checks. You know, their utility is not in the everyday mapping of ontologies. The everyday mapping of ontologies would just be done by transcribing fairly, in a fairly, which could be unmechanically, um, just the sort of surface notations of something like OWL, RDF, XML into the common logic version of OWL. Uh, and then you, you, can, you, you could utilize an adapted OWL reasoner on the resulting syntax. Um, but the, 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 the importance is uh, in, that one could, for example, uh, perform a, a very expensive uh, mechanical check that the axiomatization one had, in fact, was correct. And one only has to do that once. So um, the fact that there is a common language which all of these various languages map to and which can be, and the mappings can be shown to be correct semantically, and then simply used without, of course, re-showing them again and again, um, the usage needn't be inefficient, but the, um, the um, uh, provided the reasoners you got are, as it were, ready for the uh, particular kinds of um, 
uh, namespaces they're going to come down. Psych, for example, the Psych reasoner, as Doug, I'm sure, can tell us, has got hundreds, I believe, of specialized sub-reasoners within it that recognize particular cases and use specialized strategies for doing inferencing on them. And I imagine um, such a reasoner, well, I don't imagine, I know it's such a reasoner could be done, for example, for the owl fragment of common logic. And, and the result would be that, that one would get the same kinds of inference performance as one does from a specialized reasoner, because one would have a specialized reasoner embedded in a general reasoner. Oh, I understand. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I think there's nobody else uh, on the queue, so I'm going to... Um... Not quite. I mean, I, I can see this anonymous to wherever... An anonymous two was was the first person uh, on the on the queue, and sa she said that it was an accident. And Leo is. But she's yeah. typing now. Right, she's oh. still typing now. So so. Oh, I'm I, sorry. I, I didn't follow the. Yeah, get get sort of reused. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so. it, it's not a continuance. <laughs> so. Uh, I mean, I, I would suggest this anonymous two person to 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 service and identify yourself quickly before we give up on you. Because I did ask in the chat, and I did not get a re reply. So Ken has asked a very good question on the chat line. Can you can you want to unmute and and and, and sort of bring up your question? Hi. Yeah, I, we, I saw an awful lot of requirements passing by, and I think they're all very, very interesting and valuable, but it would be nice if we could do a little bit of prioritization and get, like, the top prior, the top services that, that we feel would be essential for an OOR um, so that hopefully we can start to converge on you know, the uh, the main issues at uh, at these later meetings. Is that a reasonable thing to ask the uh, panelists? Definitely. Uh, not just the panelists, I guess. Uh, Peter Yim here. I, I guess to everyone who is interested in the discourse, uh, there is a thread already started. I mean, uh, following up on Leo's questions last week uh, on the ontology summit list. So far, I've, we've got a huge reply from our friends from NASA, uh, but we definitely look forward to other people uh, to sort of capture your thoughts onto that list, especially if you didn't do so in the chat session last week or this week. Uh, that definitely would be helpful. Uh, while I'm uh, I have the floor. I should also remind all the panelists that uh, Leo did ask everyone for a two-slide summary. So if you have been on the panel, uh, could you please sort of summarize uh, your yours in two slides so that that could be uh, called into the uh, presentation that, uh, that we will be making during the face-to-face. Uh, as a summary. Otherwise, these four weeks uh, of panel discussion will never fit into a like one and a half hour that has been allotted. Back to Fabian. Okay. Um, well, I I think um, 
we are on time. That's great. So we, I will actually close now the session um, unless uh, Leo is re has returned, but I think he did, didn't. Um, I thank everybody uh, for this wonderful session, especially our, our panelists. Uh, that was very good. Uh, helpful and informative, and um, I think we, and uh, especially I, uh, we as leaders of the various committees and groups who are preparing um, the ontological summit, are going to use this material. And um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. And next week we will have another conference call on the metadata and ontology of ontology. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay.